as we finish this second day, second full day of our retreat, Lila and I were commenting on how much has been cooking for you. We call it cooking. It's really a lot like being in a cooking pot when you're over there. And it's always at this point, well, also even from the very beginning, really, but this point where I feel so inspired by your practice. Because I, I really am so curious, and it was also true when I was doing retreats those first beginning years, of when I call beginning years the first 10 years or so. Um, what, why, do we, why do we do this? You know, what, what makes us come when we know that there's going to be, if, you, if you've been here before, you know that it's the first few days are definitely going to be difficult in some ways. And once you start going through the difficulty, why do you, why do you stay? You know, and I'm always, I'm always very aware that, you know, the doors are open there's no locks on the doors, you know, you're completely free to come or go. And yet you stay here. You stay with yourselves and face yourselves and what's coming up in your mind and your body and your experience. And I I find that so inspiring that people are willing to do that. You come to a place like this and sit and look at your own mind, at your own heart, and face what's there. There's something that asks us to persevere through that. You know, there's something that is, is alive in us or awaken us that is saying, stay with it, stay with it. When I was beginning my meditation practice, I had I was actually having a nervous breakdown that was one of that was my motivation to come to meditation in my 20s and it was a couple of years before I found this path and when I did my first weekend retreat which is just a weekend from a Friday to a Sunday but I I didn't know whether I would be able to get through after 24 hours <laughs> by the Saturday afternoon, I was really felt like I was having another nervous breakdown, like I could not be with myself. It was just, I was, I was freaking out in some ways. You know, I just really could not stay present. I didn't understand. I didn't, you know, know what I was supposed to be doing or how to do it and didn't make any sense to me, you know. But something asked me, something inside of myself asked me to stay. And there was good guidance from this teacher at the time who said, relax, you know, take it easy. It's not, you know, it's not that big of a deal. <laughs> you know, go for a walk, you know, look at the trees, just smell the, smell the air. You let the sun touch your face. And so, you know, I just kind of took a couple breaths and got through the, the Sunday, you know, the Sunday through the Sunday afternoon. And there was also um, one man there who apparently 
it was clear that he had done a lot of meditation practice because when he did his walking meditation, and this was just in a small house, about 20, 20 of us together, when he did his walking meditation, he went out on the, on the porch and he was so steady for like a half an hour. We just walk back and forth and back and forth. And I could just really feel his concentration and his commitment and his discipline. And it was so inspiring, so inspiring to witness him. And it was, it, it, I can see him right now in my mind's eye. He just so had such a powerful presence. And it was as if I almost was carried in his wake a little bit, you know, the wake of his power, the power that he had developed from his practice. And so that helped me, you know, that helped me get through. But afterwards, there was something that said, keep going. You know, as difficult as it was, as hard as it was, there was something that was touched that had me continue. I, I start, that's when I began the path and ha, did not, have not left the path since then. So what is that? It's very curious, you know? My sense is that it's something that is already awakened in us. Something that's already awake. There's something that already, even when I was first having that nervous breakdown in my 20s and I was seeking help, I was seeking support and was turned towards meditation, by someone, and I, and I went, I, something pulled me, something took me there, and I, and I did my practice. What, is, what was that? And I think that it's almost like there's a flame that's already burning, that is wanting something that I know and you know is possible for you as a human being in this lifetime. It's said in the uh, teachings of the loving-kindness, of the metta teachings, it says that all beings want happiness. All beings want happiness. That that is our deepest wish. And that's something that we can reflect on, not only for ourselves, but for others. That deepest yearning for happiness and well-being Even the tiniest little living being, the tiniest little creature, wants happiness. You know, and sometimes I'm aware of that. You know, sometimes my my kitchen gets a bunch of ants in it, you know, and I want to get them out of there. And, you know, just, you can just, I start to get kind of fascinated with them, you know, and then just, you know, just trying to, you know, move it, move them out a little out of the main, main area. And just how they kind of rear up on their legs, you know, like, <laughs> you know, they're so sensitive, those sensitive creatures, you know. And it's like they want to be happy, they want to be safe, they want to be protected. And it's almost like it's in our, in our DNA, you know, it's in our, it's in our cellular structure, this, this kind of drive or pull for what we know is really possible. Sometimes I think it's that, you know, I think it's that that keeps us going, that keeps us moving forward to something good, to something uh, deep, something that we know is truly possible for us and for all beings, all beings on this planet, in this world. And sometimes when we start to feel that, you know, we can almost feel the quivering in our heart. We can feel the, the tenderness or the, the warmth in our heart that, that wants that for ourselves and for others. 
sometimes this might be called kind of a, a trust, a trust or, or faith. I know sometimes people have other associations with the word faith that isn't always so helpful on the spiritual path. But this kind of trust in something, something good or trusting in, in love or, or something sometimes called a higher power or something, something that is larger than us, something that is bigger than who we take ourselves to be and how, we, uh, how the world appears or how we imagine the world to be. There's something, something more. When they do studies, you know, they do studies with people to you know see if they have some religious inclinations. And I, you've probably read some of those polls. You know, it's they're huge numbers. It's like ninety percent of the people who are polled have some kind of religious connection, whatever that is. That's telling. You know, it, it's telling us something. There's something that lives in us. And we want to keep this alive. It's part of that that yearning that draws. We want to nourish this. We want to keep this alive. I have this, um, I have a patio and I have some plants on the patio. And it's wintertime, even in California, even though it's a different kind of winter. But things are, you know, there's some frost at night, so things aren't growing in the same way. But I have this one plant in a pot outside that looks absolutely dead. But it looked dead last year, too. But I know now that it's not dead. Because I decided last year, I wasn't sure what this thing was. You know, it looked like just these twigs sticking out of the soil. But I thought, okay, let me just water it and you'll keep nourish, you know, nurture it and give it some fertilizer and just see if it turns into anything. And then as the spring came, these beautiful buds started coming out of it, green little shoots. And then it turned into this amazing geranium with these flame red buds and flowers on it. I mean, it was exquisite. I I was just like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. I had no idea. And now it looks completely dead again. Now, I don't know, maybe it is dead, but but I'm willing (laughs) to see if I can keep it Keep it alive. There's something in me, there's some kind of pull that's saying, maybe that can become beautiful again. Maybe that will, if I, if I fertilize it and get it, give it some nurturing and nourishment, maybe that will show its beautiful expression of its being again. You know, and there's, there's something in us as humans that we want to do that. We want to nurture. We do it with our children. We do it with pets. We do it with other things that we get involved with. That this beautiful kind of will, a natural, a true will that we have in us to to live, to bring things into life, into well-being, into happiness. Maybe some of you have heard this story from uh, Jack Cornfield, but I, I, I love it. It's about the Golden Buddha, for those of you who haven't heard it. And uh, this happened to Jack Cornfield, and he wrote this. He said, in a large temple in Thailand's capital, there was an enormous clay Buddha. It had survived over 500 years. At one point, however, the monks who tended the temple noticed that the statue had begun to crack and would soon be in need of repair and repainting. 
after a stretch of particularly hot, dry weather, one of the cracks became so wide that a curious monk took his flashlight and peered inside. Of course, right? What's inside of this thing? What shone back at him was a flash of brilliant gold. Inside this plain old statue, the temple residents discovered one of the largest and most luminous gold images of the Buddha ever created in Southeast Asia. It was solid gold. (laughs) The monks believed that this shining work of art had been covered in plaster and clay to protect it during the times of conflict and unrest. And now this golden Buddha draws masses of devoted pilgrims from all over Thailand. Covered over, covered over. It's interesting, the word in, the word, uh, um, in Sanskrit for the hindrances is translated as covered over. So those mind states, those difficult mind states that Leela spoke about last night, of the wanting and the aversion and the sleepiness, the restlessness, the doubt. It's when we get caught up in those mind states and they become the totality of our reality, they cover over this sense of who we truly are in our fullness, in the fullness of our being. I think it's so interesting that that's the word that got translated is covered over, covering over the heart. This sometimes what we might call our essential nature or the essential being. So the Buddha talks about how our practice, how this path, walking this path, starts with faith. It starts with some kind of what also could be called a trustful confidence. There can't be any movement forward into transformative energies unless there's something that we are in touch with, something that is already awakened, that is already uh, lit in us, like a flame that's already burning in us. We We wouldn't keep walking towards this transformation of consciousness if there wasn't something that we know already and everybody who's in this room is in touch with that in some way even though you may not have identified it in that way but there's something that's moving in you it's said that we start we we can even start with something called blind faith which means we don't really know what we are in contact with or whether we do really have confidence in anything, but there's something, and we see it maybe in other people, we hear it in the teachings or see it in the teachers, or there's something that we contact when we're in nature, or something wakes us up to that, and we want more of that. We can call that blind faith. And then as we continue and walk towards that and engage in more practices or have more conversations or you know, do more retreats or whatever it is, it says that then that, that faith starts to become a bright faith. It, it becomes brighter and more, more uh, the confidence starts to build. We know for ourselves that there really is something and we, we keep moving t- towards it until the last phase, which is called verified faith, where we know 
We just know. Nobody has to remind us or tell us or it's like, I know. The faith is, is verified and it's, and it's in place. It's kind of like, this is a, a phrase in the ancient Buddhist texts. Uh, just one phrase that goes, realizing as one sees a gem in the palm. If I tell you I have a gem hidden in the folded palm of my hand, the question of belief arises because you don't see it for yourself. But if I unclench my fist and show you the gem, then you see it for yourself, and the question of belief does not arise. The question of faith, you know it's there. You see it for yourself. This belief or trust arises. Let's see, how does this? The moment you see, the question of belief disappears. There is just the truth. There is just this faith. No more confusion. It's like that. And so as we say in this practice, this insight practice, it's the insight is that you start to see for yourself. You see things clearly the way they are. And this dispels the doubt. This dispels that confusion because you know it. And this is, this is how we begin. We have to begin with something that is awake in us. This verified faith, when it becomes mature, we might not even call it faith anymore because faith almost indicates there is still, still some kind of, of, of belief. But when you know, you just know. It almost turns into something much more basic or something much more innate, something in our bones, where something like, I know in my bones I'm okay and things are okay. All is well. I know it. You know, that kind of feeling that starts to develop for us. The Buddha calls this faith a spiritual power. As this deepens, as this gets stronger, spiritual power, one of the spiritual faculties. I think it's very interesting how the Buddha speaks about the development of powers or spiritual powers. Faith being the first step. And as that faith starts to develop and get stronger, what that gives rise to is the second spiritual power, which is energy. It means we start to gain energy for the practice or for the path or, or for the um, adventure, for the journey. We have energy for it. We wake up and, hey, you know, there's something here. And this energy on the spiritual path or on the Buddhist path is an energy that is turning towards the good. It's turning towards the wholesome or the skillful. It's turning towards and it's turning away, turning us away from that which is unskillful, which gets in the way, the hindrances, that that which covers over. So, so we become, which gives rise to the third, third spiritual power, which is mindfulness. We become more mindful. We become more attentive because we start to get interested. We start to get curious. So the faith gives rise to the energy. The energy gives rise to mindfulness, this attentive awareness. Mindfulness then gives rise and strengthens concentration. 
which is a focused attention. We become more focused, more interested, more curious. And then that, that's the fourth spiritual power. And then the fifth one is what the first four give rise to, which is wisdom. It's the awakening of wisdom, this intelligent understanding of the way things are. An intelligent understanding which then begins to illuminate the mind, brighten the mind, because the mind is getting more powerful, more energized, more awake, and then begins to feed more clear seeing, more intelligent understanding into the nature of things, into the nature of reality. And it's this illuminated mind, this brightening of the mind, which then dispels the ignorance. It dispels the confusion or dispels the darkness, you might say. You know, the hidden, that which is hidden, that which is uh, uh, tucked away from consciousness, starts to brighten and illuminate. The Buddha actually calls this the original brightness. The original brightness. We start to feel and to touch more of our innate nature, the gold inside the clay Buddha, that which was covered over. And then the more wisdom brings more faith, more energy, more mindfulness, more concentration, more wisdom, more faith. More. It's just like that. And it's like a circle. Like, the, like this, I see it in my mind's eye, I see it like this engine, you know, the engine which drives the spiritual energy. And I can feel the power in it, you know, and how that energy becomes more and more and more powerful, maybe more and more laser-like. Sometimes you know when the mind can be very focused, almost very absorbed. There's a power in it. But we want to use that power. We want to turn that power towards the transformation of our consciousness and the transformation of of our heart rather than using the power for the ego mind or the the self to get more for myself, you know. Wow, I'm powerful now. I can just go out there and do whatever I want and get what I want. And, you know, wish that that power can be turned in in the service of myself. And then I forget about the rest of the world and the interconnectedness of the world and how everything affects everything else. When I start to open in that way, and I start to really see in that way, it's magnificent what can start to happen for us. Hafiz, this wonderful uh, poet, says, How did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all its beauty It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. It felt the encouragement of light. And in the same way, that's what starts to happen. We feel the light, which then helps us release our fears and our worries and our regrets, which are all connected to the past. 
You know, the way we hold on to all of our perceptions and our views and our ideas of what happened in our past. And it all can get pretty distorted in there and pretty thick in there. But when the light comes, we start to see in a way we maybe not have seen before. So this is the spiritual power, the power that turns the mind towards the good, or, w- or whatever word you'd like to use there, you know, turns the mind towards love, turns the mind towards that which is beautiful. We've been talking a lot about the, the pain, the suffering, the difficulty, but, but this, is, this is fertilizer, this is nourishment, for the mindfulness, for the concentration, to turn the mind towards that which is beautiful. Those qualities of our being that are inherently who we are, what we are. Waking up to know that, to to see what's really true about who we are, rather than believing all of these distorted ideas about who we think we are and who we take ourselves to be. We might call this also a kind of transmutation that happens with this power, these spiritual powers, a transmuting the um, emotional energies. And uh, Herbert Benoit compares this transmutation to the metamorphosis of coal into diamonds. And I really like this. He says, the aim of the practice is not the destruction of the ego, which is sometimes what we think these teachings are about, not the destruction of the ego, but its transformation. When there is conscious acceptance of who we are and what we are, It is like a piece of coal becoming denser and so blacker and so more opaque that acceptance itself starts to compact that piece of coal and then being instantly transformed into a diamond that is perfectly transparent. That kind of transmutation. So it's almost like the mindful, the energy, the mindfulness, the concentration has this kind of power to start breaking up this sense of solidity, of density, of hardness into something else that is lighter, that is more open, more fluid perhaps, more transparent. Mm. Sometimes they say the, the reasons angels can fly is because they take themselves lightly. You know, that kind of transmutation. So perhaps you can see that the mindfulness and the concentration don't stand alone. It's like mindfulness isn't enough in some ways. You know, it's all, they're, they're supported by the other three, the faith, the energy, you know, we work with the energy, we need to balance our energy so the energy doesn't get too, too much into the striving and we don't get too passive and laid back. Lila was speaking about this a bit, this not too loose, not too uh, tight. 
working with the energy, the, the mindfulness, the cultivation of the mindfulness, so we have a sense of what it is and, and what does it mean and how do we really apply this in our lives? And how can we develop more focus, more, more focused attention so that the mindfulness starts to balance with the concentration and we get more one-pointed in our attention so that the mind starts to see more clearly with its illumination, with its brilliance. Mindfulness really is this contact. It's the contact that we make with what's happening, moment to moment, moment to moment, this thinking or feeling or sensing or hearing, tasting, this contact. And then the concentration is the gathering of those energies so that we are returning again and again and again, gathering. So when the distractions come, we get pulled this way and that, we keep gathering that mindfulness back, which gives more of a feeling of a a unified whole, like we're actually here. In, with some sustained attention. It's not just, you know, flickering, like, yeah, I heard that sound, but now I've been lost for five minutes, well, but I'm back, you know. It's like, no, there's more of a sustaining of that attention, which is really what the, what the concentration brings. And then these two factors really give us the power then to engage more creatively with our experience, with whatever's happening. It's not like we just be with it and then what? You know, it's like, okay, I, I'm feeling ang- angry. So what? What now? <laughs> I know I'm feeling angry. What do I do now? But it's like, well, how through this attention and through some sustained attention, I can start to engage with the wisdom. The wisdom says, yeah, you know, if you just keep thinking about this person who's really been upsetting to you and you just keep thinking and thinking, you just get more and more angry. Maybe it would be a good idea to do something else. Maybe stop thinking about this person. And we then learn maybe just to maybe distract ourselves. We'll call up somebody or go for a walk or, you know, just, just stop, stop. That's the wisdom. The wisdom interrupts, the wisdom interferes with that habitual uh, momentum of that habit. So we we begin to engage in a way where we're not so caught in the reactivity and the confusion and not knowing what to do. The wisdom starts to have more more of an impact. There's a, a, a lovely little poem from Hafiz again. And Hafiz really um, relates to this, something of a higher power or, uh, or something he calls the friend, you know, the friend in this case, you know, something that is, uh, symbolizes that, that good or that awakeness. He said, I used to live in a cramped house with confusion and pain, but then I met the friend and started getting drunk and singing all night. Confusion and pain started acting nasty, making threats with talk like this. If you don't stop all that, if you, if you don't stop that, all that fun, we're leaving. <laughs> making nasty threats, right? That's what we, sometimes it feels like. You know, the mind doesn't want us to free up. Sometimes it likes its habits. 
sitting on that throne, the throne of control. So there's these, I want to talk about these two mental factors that arise in the mindfulness and concentration because I think that, I mean, as I understand these factors more and more, it's really illuminating a lot for me in terms of my, the application in my life. And the first one is uh, what arises when the, when the mind is um, uh, in, in, a, in a present and balanced place. It's called vitaka. And this means a kind of a directed uh, application of our thought. It's like when we direct our attention to the breath, or we direct our attention to sensations in the body, or we, we direct our attention to letting go of a thought. So there's a kind of a wisdom that moves through that directing. That's the first one, it's called vitaka. And it makes contact with the object, with the thought or the feeling or the sensation or the experience. It's like, it'd be like when I, when I strike the bell. So just that contact, that's the vitaka, it's just the... I made the contact. But it doesn't stay by itself. It, ha- it goes with the second factor, which is called vichara. And the vichara is what happens after you make the contact, which is... There's a reverberation. It's not just that we make contact, but everything that we make contact with has an impact in consciousness. Everything. Anytime we see a sight or have a smell or a taste or, or, or a thought or an image, it has a reverberation. And I think it's very important to, to understand this reverberation because it's this, it's this reverberation is actually what's called knowing the experience in the experience. And sometimes we're already on to the next thing, right? And we forget that that thing just had an impact on us. And we might think that somehow we're supposed to be able to let that go, or why am I so bothered by this, or why am I getting so upset about this, or what's, it's like, (laughs) this is life. This is the kind of the energy, or we might say the vibration of life moving through us is through that, that impact. For example, just before I came in here this evening, um, my, my mother, who's 88, has a partner who's 93. And this partner now is in the hospital. He's been in there for two weeks. He's been, they're, doing, they can't, they're doing something with his heart. I just heard today maybe he might have to get a pacemaker at 93. And, and my mother's home. She doesn't really know what's going on. And I wanted to call her. So I just gave her a call. I haven't had a chance because I've been pretty busy. And just, just find out how she is, how she's doing. My sister had called a few times, said that my mom was very upset, had been crying. They were crying together. And um, she was crying with her partner and all this. So I really wanted to check in and had a lovely conversation with her for just a little bit. But she was tired and wanted to go rest. And, and so I came down here and then I sat, right? That's not gone. <laughs> you know, so I sit down and as I'm present with the contact, 
contact and the reverberation, just feeling what's happening, sensing, as we've been doing here, sensing my body, sensing the feeling, sensing what's happening in my experience, feeling the tenderness, so much tenderness in my heart, feeling the vibrations moving through my body. Not that it has to go away. You know, that's, that's the beautiful quality of life. And even though there's a painful element, you know, it's very sad. It's a very sad story. I'm wondering every day whether Bill's, I'm going to get a call and he's, they're going to say he died. You know, really holding that and the pain from my mother. That's real. And I'm feeling that as an impact. That's life. You know, that's the aliveness and the more that I bring the, my presence to that, my awareness to that, then I'm engaged with my experience. I'm with the reverberation, the vichara. And what that does is gives me this possibility of being very intimate with myself, very intimate in the relationships, very connected, very engaged, very awake, very present, alive. And sometimes we might think we only want to do that when it's pleasant, you know. It's nice to rub up against the experience, you know, let it last longer when it's a nice experience, you know. And we, and we can do that. We do that pretty well. I was thinking about, I know Leela did the practice with you with the raisins. And that would be an example. You know, contact. You put the raisin in your mouth, contact. And then rolling it around and, you know, tasting and feeling and sensing and, you know, what are the qualities of the rays? And that's the vichara. It's really, really feeling. What is that experience within the experience? Going deep into it. And sometimes that comes naturally, you know, when you're out in nature, you feel relaxed, you're open, and you can just feel the impact. And you want to feels good and you feel the changing happening in your body and in your your mind and there's a a kind of a way you might feel more refreshed it has an impact on you and so we we start to go towards that that's the wisdom the wisdom says go towards that go towards the things that bring about more sense of of openness and release and heart opening and connection move towards that It's part of the the natural pull. So this part of this, this, this actually the feeling or the rubbing, sometimes called the rubbing with the experience, this sustained contact with what's happening, gives us a chance to explore more, to be to be more with the experience, whether it's being with a person, you know, or a job or something we're engaged in. You know, what is, what, how, does it, how does it make us feel? What's actually happening as we engage in that? It's not just some mindfulness, kind of a bare mindfulness of our feet or our breath or, you know, um, a sound or a sight, you know. It's like, oh, there's a resonance happening. And then those resonances overlap. <laughs> you know, like tonight when I was feeling the impact of speaking to my mother and then coming down and also being aware that I was giving a talk tonight, you know, and also feeling all the energy from that as well. And then the overlapping energies moving together. 
I mean, how many are overlapping a lot of the time? <laughs> and then, you know, we really feel that. That's what, you know, that's coming through us. And we feel that in all different kinds of ways. It can be very complex sometimes. But yet as we start to have more capacity to open to that experience in a wider way, we can allow those energies to flow through. What's happening with really with that curiosity, that interest to know the experience in the experience, to know deeply what's happening? I was speaking to a friend recently who was telling me, and maybe, I don't know, you'll, you'll keep this a secret, I'm sure, as many people do about themselves, but she was telling me a secret, which was that she was watching The Bachelor. <laughs> and it's really like, you don't want anybody to know, right? But she's a good friend. And, and she was saying, she said, I watched it before I went to bed. And she said, and it gave me indigestion in my mind. And she said, I had eaten some pasta because I I was late with my dinner and I had indigestion in my stomach and I had indigestion in my mind. And she said, what is it? She said, "But but but I'm so pulled into it. I'm getting so caught into it. I can't stop. It's like an addiction, even though I see what it's doing to me. She said, it makes me get caught up in all those emotions that I hate, you know, jealousy and, you know, envy and the lust and all those, you know, all those things that they want you to feel when you watch those kind of reality shows. The Bachelor. Maybe there's even people in here who don't know about The Bachelor. I'll bet there are. Fortunately. <laughs> you know, there's, one, there's one man who has a, his pick of like 15 women. And they're all competing for this one man. It's crazy. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> maybe the men don't think so. <laughs> but all the competitiveness and the jealousy and all that, you know, it's, it's what we call samsara, which is the wheel, you know, birth and death, you know, just you can't get off of it. And, and she was just saying that, you know, it was really allowing her to feel the impact of what happens when she first clicks on the TV contact, right? <laughs> Click it on and then woof, you know, what starts to happen. Now, when we have some kind of way to be present with our experience and don't just go unconscious, you know, in the addiction and the seduction, which is exactly what the, 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 chant, the, uh, the what do you call them, the, cable people, whoever's putting on the show, what they want. They want you to get into that addiction so that you'll keep watching their show. But if we can step out for a moment, we step out of the moral judgment that it's bad, that it's, you know, you shouldn't be watching reality TV or it's not good for the practice or whatever, all the judgments that we have about it, and just feel what happens when we engage in that kind of activity, and this is what what she was talking about, her inquiry, she said, it's just not good for me, it's not healthy. And she feels, she can feel her mind gets congested and, and, you know, the indigestion, and and she says, I don't want to do it. And so she's working with it, you know, she's working with it. (laughs) 
so this is this is the vichara, you know, this impact, this this um, contact and reverberation. And you notice that it has its own nature. It's still going. It has its own nature. We don't know when that will end. And some events have a huge impact, right? We're still feeling them. Whether they're positive or whether they're negative, traumas or or celebrations, still feeling them. And when I think of this, I think of the, of, the, of the Buddha being born and walking the earth almost 3,000 years ago. We are in that reverberation right now. We are feeling that. We are living in that resonance of the Buddha's teachings right now. 3,000 years ago, the power of that, and in this case, the power of that goodness, the power of that love and the compassion that poured out of the Buddha's heart for the, for the benefit of all beings, for the, for the liberation of all beings from their pain and their sorrow. Powerful. So we want to be careful, in a way, what we're coming into contact with. I think what was happening for my friend, she was saying, we want to be careful what we enter into, because some things have a real grip. Some things really can pull us, and we can't find our way out so easily. But we can if we can use some wisdom, some wise choice, make some wise choice before we start to get too far involved, too far uh, caught up. Bringing the wisdom bringing the wisdom into that, the wise reflection. Is, is this going to bring more happiness and uh, harmony and, and goodness and love in my life? Or is this going to lead to more pain, to more suffering, to more conflict? And every moment we can be reflecting on that. That's the wisdom manifesting in our mind's, mind's eye. What is, what's going to happen as I continue to have contact in this way? And as we are in this bright awareness, when we bring this kind of presence to our experience, it brings with it a quality of happiness. A happiness that is not dependent on what we're actually engaged in, the conditions itself, like with my mother, wasn't the you know conditions of what my mother is involved in right now that brought happiness? It was the the fact that I could bring so much presence and care and wholeness in a way, the whole of myself to that to that meeting, to that experience. It brings a happiness, a sukha, we call it a sukha. And then it helps to bring the mind even more focused, um, focused or one-pointed. We become more one-pointed in our caring, that kind of absorption, a way we can get absorbed into that, but hopefully in, in something that is, 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 is liberating, is transformative, is, is awakening our heart and our mind. 
Sometimes we call that, that one-pointedness, the one point that contains everything now. The one point, we're just right here, fully engaged, that contains everything now. So these are the faculties that we're developing, and you can see that mindfulness is only one part that the mindfulness really is a vehicle for our wisdom, a vehicle for the awakening of our heart or our love, our compassion, wisdom. In this way, we start to become more free. And what we become free of are those those factors or those qualities that have covered over our goodness, had covered over our love. That's what we're freeing up. That's what starts to dissolve and and fade away more and more and more. And this kind of focused attention or this this, uh, uh, paying closer attention to what we are engaged in is not a narrowing of our experience. Sometimes it can almost feel like we're getting too narrow, too focused. But in, when we're bringing these qualities of mindfulness and concentration and energy, what's actually happening is we're more open. There's more of us that is available to the experience. We're actually not very, we're not limited or closed off or narrow, but actually bringing our whole being into the experience. One teacher said it's like, maybe one way of saying it is that we're vacating the controlling mind so the mind can take its rightful place. We're vacating the controlling mind so the mind can take its rightful place. And that is a mind that is in the service of a higher good or the mind that is in service of of awakening or liberation. Or we might even say the mind of love, where the mind and love or the heart just collapse into one thing, one expression. Maya Angelou said, good done anywhere is good done everywhere. Good done anywhere is good done everywhere. Again, the reverberation, the impact. Just one moment, one expression, one kind gesture, one kind word or activity. You know, just the ripples, the ripples that go out. So powerful, more than we can even know, more than we can even, even imagine. Joseph Campbell said, people say we are looking for meaning in life. I do not think that is what we are looking for at all. I think what we are really looking for is an experience of being alive. Experience of being alive. This is the aliveness. This is where we find the aliveness is in this engagement with life. Here, as it is, as it's presenting itself now. And being able to be present enough to feel what happens in that engagement so then we can be able to choose what we're going to move towards and what we're going to move away from. Because wise discrimination, wise choice. 
So I'm hoping this gives you a little bit broader sense of the teachings of the path, because sometimes when we do this kind of the rigor, you know, the rigor of, you know, watching your breath and paying attention to your feet and staying present and, you know, the hindrances come up, it can kind of, you know, it's sometimes like, wonder what are we doing this for? And then to have this, have, start to have a little bit more context for where, what these practices are and, and where, they're, where they're leading, where they're leading us. You might even say this gathering of sacred energy, gathering, gathering the holiness here. You can feel it, you know, you can, I can feel it in this room, I'm sure you can feel it. It's this gathering of the sacredness. We're drawn to that. We're pulled to that. So I'll end with um, this poem, another poem by Hafiz. We have not come here to take prisoners, but to surrender ever more deeply to freedom and joy. We have not come into this exquisite world to hold ourselves hostage from love. Run, my dear, from anything that may not strengthen your precious budding wings. Run, my dear, from anyone likely to put a sharp knife into the sacred, tender vision of your beautiful heart. We have a duty to befriend those aspects of goodness that stand outside of our house and shout to our reason, Oh, please, oh, please, come out and play. For we have not come here to take prisoners or to confine our wondrous spirits, but to experience, to live ever and ever more deeply. Let's sit just for a moment. We have not come into this this exquisite world to hold ourselves hostage from love or to confine our wondrous spirits, but to experience, to live ever and ever more deeply. Thank you for your very kind attention tonight. And I want to just say a couple of words about the rest of Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash
donate.